The second scripture reading is a continuation of 1 Samuel 19, uh, beginning with verse 11. And that is again in, in our church Bible in page, on page 205. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent men to capture David, Michal said, He is ill. Then Saul sent men back to see David and told them, Bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michal, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? McCall told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Sekiu. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off all his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He laid that way all the day and night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Thanks, Lou. up here. All right, so we're in uh, 1 Samuel 19, and um, we're going to uh, continue to look at the, the section. Actually, what we're going to have to do a little bit of is we're going to have to dip back into chapter uh, 18, not because Marion didn't cover it well, but just to, to uh, hold these two passages together, because the passage we're in in 19 really began in 18. And so we'll dip back there in, in a minute. Um, but here's the general gist. Saul is in decline. 
and um, we're uh, we're looking at that chapter nine. Chapter nineteen is a is, as we'll see a deadly spiral of Saul's life, down, 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 down. Essentially, is what's going on for him, and um, and the the passage identifies for us the reason. And the reason for Saul's decline at this point in his life, um, let's, let's just take out of the equation the fact that God has removed his hand from Saul. The thing that is consuming Saul is his envy. And he is envious of David. Now, we have known for a long time that envy is destructive. Socrates said in the 4th century, the envious person grows lean with the fatness of their neighbor. The envious person grows lean with the fatness of their neighbor. That's the 4th century. How about 2018, just a few months ago, um, an author, Moya Sarner, wrote in The Guardian, um, and here's what she said, we live in the age of envy. Career envy, kitchen envy, children envy, food envy, upper arm envy, holiday envy. You name it, there's an envy for it. Human beings have always felt what Aristotle defined in the 4th century B.C. as pain at the sight of another's good fortune, stirred by those who have what we ought to have. Stirred by those who have what we ought to have. In, in Saul's life right now, he is being consumed from the inside out. And the thing that is consuming him is what David has. Let's jump back to chapter 18 and look at it. And we'll start here as we think about the envy that consumes us. The envy that consumes us. The first point is that envy begins in the heart. When David returns in chapter 18 from killing the Philistines, the women come out and they're singing a song. All right? So think of it as some sort of a parade. Uh, they come out and they come from uh, all over the towns of Israel and they meet Saul and David with singing and dancing. And as they sang, they sang this. Saul has slain his thousands. David his tens of thousands. Now, we're talking about a warrior culture, okay? So in this warrior culture, this is a huge slap in the face for Saul. And the text tells us, verse 8 of chapter 18, Saul was very angry. The refrain, the song that those women sang, angered him and displeased him greatly. They have, this is Saul now, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. There's your key. Saul's not saying any of this. The text says that he was thinking in his mind, in his heart, he was thinking, they have credited David with killing tens of thousands. And all he was doing was thinking it. 
but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And then verse 9 is the tip. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye, literally a jealous eye or an envious eye on David. This is the beginning. It's the beginning for Saul. I mean, it's already been there. But this is a really uh, major point as Saul begins the spiral out of control. That's what chapter 19 is really about. Um, It it begins here. He he begins to move against David in in some sneaky ways. But But the main point here is envy begins deep in our psyche, our thoughts, our hearts. In, in, in the passage overall, the, the author is setting up for us this contrast. And the contrast in chapter 18 is between Jonathan and Saul. Because what do we learn about Jonathan? Well, in the first couple of verses, we learn that Jonathan recognizes what's going on with David. And so he takes off his robe and he takes off his tunic and he gives he gives all of these things to David and it says that the spirit of God knit them together and gave Jonathan a love for David. And so in the passage Jonathan is the one who loves David, Saul is the one who envies David. And what does what does um Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 13? Love does not envy. Right? And so here is the contrast that's being set up between these two. Saul Saul has envy in his heart. Jonathan has love in his heart. And those two don't cross. Here's what James says in James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Right? That's where it begins. It, it begins in the things that we're thinking. Not long ago, I, I, a drill, two drill periods ago, I'm back in Mississippi, and um, I walk into the commander. There's, the commander has like a little section, and so he's got a, his executive officer, and then he's got the kind of a, his secretary, who's who's a master sergeant, and um, and they're great. And so I walked in, and we were, we're talking and and visiting, and um, and another lady from the from our uh, it's kind of our education office. She comes in. It's the training office, and um, and they're talking about how she's trying to get a handle on her use of language. How's that? Just to put it nicely, okay? So the the head of our training office is known for having a pretty a, a pretty spicy tongue, and um, and so they were talking about these these techniques. Right, the things that she was going to do to help get her her tongue under control, and it, her name's Rita. And I just looked at Rita and I said, "You know, Rita, it really doesn't begin here; it begins here." And she was blown away, so much so that when I saw her this next drill period, I was just walking down the road, and she cut across a field to come talk to me. You know, I've been thinking about all that stuff you said, so it really doesn't make any difference what's happening at my tongue. What really makes a difference is what happens in my heart. And I said, bingo. That's exactly it. And envy for us 
begins in the heart. Listen, it will show itself in a lot of really ugly ways, but it starts in the heart, and that's what James tells us. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, right? Here's what envy does. Envy in our hearts says, he but me, or she but me. Um, That's how we begin to think, right? David has this, but I deserve it. Okay? That's the way that Saul is seeing this relationship. He is getting praise, but that praise should be my praise. So, David, but me. I'm more than that. I, I, I was this close. I might, I was this close to using an actual video clip of my sermon. How radical would that be? Um, and there's a great comedian. His name's Brian Regan. And if you want to YouTube him, you can YouTube the clip. And the clip is this, very specific, the me monster. And that is what it is, right? It, it is this, this growing in, in his heart, Saul is looking at him, and he simply cannot be okay with the fact that David is, David is the real warrior receiving the real praise. In Romans chapter 12, verse 14, Paul says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, we're to weep with those who weep. One author, one author says what envy does to us is it, it, it flips the script, okay, so that we Weep with those who rejoice. The person who battles that envious heart weeps with the one who rejoices and rejoices at the one who weeps. And it happens deep in our hearts, but it moves out into our actions. And that's where chapter 19 comes into play. Saul has an envious heart. He's begun to move in that. Marion covered some of this last week. He is, uh, he's playing kind of a bait and switch with his daughters and, and um, trying to uh, manipulate David. And one of the things that he does in chapter 18, remember, is I'll give you uh, McCall if you go out and you secure a hundred Philistine foreskins. This is the ancient scalps, okay? I know it sounds absolutely incredible, but the Philistines were, were not circumcised, and, and so if you go out essentially and kill a hundred Philistine warriors and bring back their foreskins, of course we know what he's trying to do is get David killed, right? So this is, this is his roundabout way. So in chapter 18, everything is kind of smoke and mirrors, right? So here's my daughter. You can have my daughter, but only if you bring me a hundred foreskins from the Philistines. So David goes out, and of course, he's a warrior amongst warriors. He doesn't bring back a hundred. He brings back two hundred. All right? And um, I know it's, it's a gruesome picture, but the, and, and that's just a, a sign that the hand of the Lord was on him. Okay? And so now we get to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, there's basically four episodes that occur. And the episodes are this continued decline of Saul. So, so think on this. Saul is the king. Okay? He's known throughout the land. He, he is in a very high position. I mean, he's, he is the top dog. And, and, and so, to a degree, 
he, he's somewhat reserved at first. And so in chapter 18, it's, it's smoke and mirrors. It's, you know, do this, I'll give you my daughter. Once we get to, to chapter 19, um, things begin to, to melt down rather quickly. We have in the first episode, Saul. So in chapter 18, there, there, there's a, there's a situation in which David is playing the harp for Saul. And in the middle of that episode, right, Saul always seems to have his hand on his spear. He chucks his spear at David. David dodges and it hits the wall. And David is, David at that point is just thinking, well, Saul's just having a bad day, right? He's, it's the depression again. We get to chapter 19 and the, and, and, Basically what happens is that there's this coming together. Jonathan helps bring the parties together. And so David returns to Saul's court and he goes back to Saul's court and he plays the harp again and uh, he's doing his thing. And lo and behold, wham, here comes the spear again. And what does David think? He finally gets it. He says, I have got to make my escape. And so that night he escapes and he, and, and, and he gets away from Saul. The second incident comes along, and, and, and essentially um, Saul is banking on um, Michal, his daughter. Okay, so I mean, this is made for television, right? This is the big screen sort of stuff, especially this next little episode. Because in the next episode, what happens is she returns home from Publix, and she notices, what are all these guys with dark sunglasses everywhere? Right? I mean, that's kind of the picture. She sees Saul's henchmen, and they're everywhere. Oh, she thinks, they're here for David. And so she goes in, and where do her and David, they go to the kitchen. Right? And in the kitchen, they have a conversation. And the conversation goes something like this. Honey, my dad's men are out there, and they're going to kill you. And so you've got to get out of here. And so... She lets him down out of the wall, you know, bed sheets and all. And then she goes, and in the bed, she takes the family idols, and she puts them in the bed, and she puts some goat's hair in there, and then she answers the door. And the modern, and the modern one is, right, she would answer the door, and the humidifier would be going, and she's got a thermometer in her hand, and she says, oh, he's sick. You really don't want to be messing with him today, okay? Um, and of course we know what happens. They come in, they look, ah, thwarted. And then Saul in- interrogates her. Okay. So now we've gone from he chucks a spear to he sends his henchmen. Things are getting more serious. The next episode is that Saul sends his, he finds out where David is and he gets a group of his, his dudes together and he sends them down there. Only this time there's no protection. So David meets Samuel, and he tells Samuel what's going on. And Samuel says, I can't do anything for you, man. I've got, I've got nothing. And so they're just kind of waiting, essentially. And Saul sends his men down to get David. And on the way down, the Spirit of God comes upon them. And they literally start just prophesying the Word of God. It's supernatural. Saul hears, like, what in the world? So he sends another group. And the same thing happens. 
And he sends another group. And the same thing happens. And then he probably said something like, all right, if you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself. And so Saul himself, and this is where you, right? So we're talking about he's descending, right? Before he's the king and he's behind the scenes doing everything, finally, at the end of 19, Saul says, forget it, I'm going to kill him myself. And he leaves his palace and he makes his way down and he has exactly the same thing happen to him. The Spirit of God falls on him. He begins prophesying. He even prophesies in front of Samuel. As if, I mean, you can't, it, it's almost comedic, right? I mean, here is the guy who has completely lost the kingdom, and God turns him into a prophet to speak his own word boldly before Samuel. That's the descent. That's how far he has gone. And here's what's driving him. What's driving him is, think about this. David is getting the praise that I deserve. The logic is, if David's not on the scene, then all that praise David is getting will come my way. Because I really deserve it. I'm the king. That's, that is what has driven Saul to the point of chapter 19, of leaving his throne room and traveling down to take David's life himself. Ultimately, if we cultivate envy in our hearts, it will come out. We may not hunt somebody down and kill them, but we'll probably be really, we'll find other ways uh, to hurt them. I've told this, I've, I've told at least a portion of the story before, and it's, um, it's, it's somewhat hard for me to recount, but it's, it was kind of my own personal battle with, with envy, um, at a point in my career. And, um, and I think I've shared it before, but it was with a, a fellow chaplain in the Air Force, and, um, we were both young captains. And we were stationed at Mountain Home Air Force Base. And, um, you know, it, it started out, it was kind of benign. Um, but there, when, when the new chaplain got there, he was a captain right away. And then I found out he'd only ever been a youth minister, but he was an ordained youth minister. And, um, and I had pastored a church. And, um, and I was just a first lieutenant because I hadn't been ordained for seven years, but he had been. And, you know... Okay, so that kind of rattled around in my heart for a little while. Um, and then they gave us this, you know, we, we, we kind of get our assignments and that sort of thing. And I had the chapel, so I, I was the chaplain responsible for the only Protestant chapel service, and, and he wasn't, you know. And uh, well, that was a good thing. Um, only the next thing that comes along is our first school assignments. And for chaplains... Um, we don't get a lot of school slots. And so if you get one, it's a really big deal. And, um, and so the assignment for schools came out, and he got the first assignment, and I didn't. And I, I, I couldn't understand how that could be. And it was envy, because what I was thinking was, he doesn't deserve that. I deserve that, Right? 
And it ate at me, and it ate at me. And so I started doing little things. I, I had little, um, I, I, I came up with a little, you know, in the military you, you do lots of nicknames and stuff like that. But So I came up with a nickname for Steve. And um, I'll never forget, he, he walked into the staff meeting one day, and I said, Hey, man, what's up, Golden Boy? And, uh, and pretty soon the whole staff was calling him Golden Boy, and it was funny. Only years later, I found out it was really hurtful to him. My envy, right, my jealousy had eaten at me to the point that I thought if I tore him down, somehow that would lift me up. And that's what envy does. And it does it in a myriad of ways. And you have, no doubt, your own struggle with uh, the powerful force of envy that starts in your heart and pretty soon it, it begins to come out in your actions. The way you talk, the way you act, the way you feel, the way you experience your relationship with other people. I'll close the loop on that story and just tell you that I don't know how long later, but at some point later I I contacted Steve um, via via the greatest mode possible for envy i used facebook right because facebook is where you get to watch everybody's great life unfold and and you get to experience tremendous envy because everything they post is absolutely the best of the best right their their happiest moment their greatest day on the beach the beautiful mountain home that they're enjoying while you sit at home carrying the garbage out to the street, okay? So you get to watch everybody else's great life. So I chose that wonderful method to contact Steve and to say, hey, brother, I apologize. I'm sorry for the way I acted and treated you. And he was really gracious, and and he forgave me. Let's talk about our, our our final point. And it's this. What is the antidote? What is the antidote to envy in our hearts? And here it is. It's grace. Grace, which is unmerited favor given to us, is the antidote. And here's how it works. So imagine that you were coveting someone's stuff. Okay? You were... You were desiring of whatever good thing they had. And what if they gave it to you? Right? So what if, let's just do a what if scenario. What if David and Saul are there and Saul has, is envious of David because of the praise that David is getting from the women. And so David said, you know what? I'm going to have those women sing your praises, Saul. And he went out and he, and he had the ladies say that about Saul instead of about David. Okay? Or some really good, amazing gift that someone has. And you, you think you deserve it, but you really don't. Okay? And so you become envious of it. And what if they, they turned and they actually gave it to you? Have you ever received a really large gift? If you have, you'll know how hard it is to actually take it. 
Because when someone gives you something totally undeserved and totally just magnificent and large, what does it do to you? Do you think to yourself when they're giving it to you, oh yeah, I deserve that? No. You're embarrassed. You think to yourself, I can't possibly take that. Well, we do this with small gifts. What if somebody offered to you the greatest gift known to man? What if somebody freely offered you the forgiveness of the creator of the universe and then said to you, I'll take your really sucky position and I'll give you my really fabulous position. That's grace. That's the gospel, right? Because here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to take it to the cross and then I'm going to give you my righteousness so that you can stand before the creator of the universe. Free and clear. That's what he says. That is the antidote to envy, right? Because as you look square into the greatest gift ever devised, ever given, what could you possibly then turn and say, I deserve that? Because if you know the gift, you know how amazing that gift is, and you know how incredible it is that he took your sin to the cross, right? What do we call that? We call that the gospel. The antidote to envy in your heart is more gospel. Because in the gospel, what do we realize? We realize that while we were desperately sinful, he loved us. While we could do nothing for ourselves, okay? And that destroys envy because it's a realistic understanding of who you are and who he is and what he's done for you. That destroys envy in your heart. What do you really deserve? That's where it begins, right? What do I really deserve? The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The supper that we're getting ready to celebrate is a picture of that amazing gift. It's a reminder to us that he loved us enough to give himself for us, to offer himself as a living sacrifice, to make himself nothing. Listen, Jesus was entitled to everything. All the glories of heaven were his And he turned them aside and he gave them up in order that you and I might possess them. Is that me? It's okay. Um, And that is the really amazing news. Is that he offered this for us. He gave, he turned aside everything in order for us 
to have everything. He's given us all that we need for life and godliness. And this supper is a picture of it. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good to us. And so we, we pause and we come now to you and we come to the supper. And we are thankful for it. And we're thankful for the amazing work that you've done in our lives. That you brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and you've planted us firmly in the kingdom of light. And so we give you praise and we give you thanks. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. As we move to the supper, let me just remind you that this is not my table and it's not our table. It's the Lord's table. It's the the meal that he set for his disciples when he transformed the Passover into his own supper. And and so as we come to it, I I just want to encourage you that um, the supper isn't for people who are perfect. It's not for people who have it all together. The supper is for people who know that they are sinners saved by grace. And so if you know that, if you've made that profession of faith, if you've been baptized, then this supper is for you. And then the Apostle Paul gives us an encouragement in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the encouragement is for us to literally discern the body. And what he means by that, I think, is for us to discern our relationships in the body. In this body, where are you? Are, are, are you okay? Or, or is there a, a situation? Is there an animosity? Is there an envious relationship somewhere that needs to be dealt with? And if that's the case, if, if that's going on in your heart or your life, or if there is some significant issue, then, then let the supper pass you by today and take the opportunity to reflect on the gospel and what steps you need to take in order to remedy that part of your life. But if you're in that fight, if you're in the fight of faith, repentance, trusting the Lord, the supper is for you. It's for weak, struggling, hospitalized sinners who know that they're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Come to the table. Let's take our hymnals, or yes, let's take our hymnals and let's stand as we sing Ferris Lord Jesus, hymn 170. We'll sing the first and the second.
Espírito. So as we come to the table, there are several things that are happening. The first is, we recreate the events of that night. So we come, and we have a cup, and we have the bread, and we celebrate. We celebrate it in the, the way, in the spirit that Christ offered that meal to his disciples that evening. So we re- recreate the events, and then at the same time, we are renewing, in a sense, our covenant vows with our Creator. We are saying, as we take this, that we are trusting by faith in Christ and His work alone for our salvation. And so as we take the meal, you're essentially making a proclamation. And the proclamation is, I belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me. And so as we come and we do this, that's what you're saying. And the third thing that that we are affirming is that we affirm our connectedness in this body. And we're saying we're, we're connected to the body of Christ, that we're active in our participation, not only with Christ, but with Christ's people. And that's why we celebrate the meal together the way that we do. It's, it's why we don't do it individually. It's why we don't just have it in our home when we have milk and cookies. Um, because there's something about the gathering together of God's people. It's a proclamation in itself as we celebrate the meal together that we're His and that we're longing for His next appearing. And so as we do that, as we come to it, let me pray for us. Father, thank You. Thank You for this meal set by your Son and our Savior. Thank you for the elements that are here. The cup, the fruit of the vine, the bread, represent and remind us that you provide everything that we need in life. You sustain us. You sustain us every single day, and you sustain us in our spiritual journey as well. And we know that as we take These elements by faith, you build our faith. You grow our faith. And so we ask, Father, that you'll be at work doing that. And Father, where we're weak, build us up. Where our faith is shallow and struggling, we pray. Let this meal strengthen us for the journey. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.